Is anyone cheerful? Let him, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Can I just share something with you guys for a minute? <clears throat> you know, when I started studying this passage, I began with the Sam Aubrey book that gave the teachers to use as a reference. I'm going to read to you the first sentence addressing this passage. This last section of James is well acknowledged as being one of the hardest to understand in the whole letter and perhaps even the whole New Testament. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I don't share that with you to complain or to brag, though I will say that when I had a conflict, Duhadway dodged a bullet when he traded with me the, for this week. No, I, I just share this by way of saying that I have struggled with this passage for weeks. It's also a recognition that there is no way I can cover everything that this passage has to offer this morning. In the end, I can only share with you what I've learned and what God's taught me, if you get my distinction. I'm going to start out by explaining why Aubrey describes this as hard to understand, and then we'll move on from there. First of all, this section is often cited in relation to faith healing, and faith healers in particular. Now, I only have 20 minutes, and there's just not enough time to adequately summarize what scholars and theologians have been debating and continue to debate over the topic of faith healers. I'm not taking sides here in the discussion between continuationism. Cessationism is the doctrine that spiritual gifts such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, and healing ceased with the apostolic age. All of that is for another day and another form. Remember, i got 20 minutes. Second, there seems to be some discussion of this passage being the basis for the Catholic sacrament of performing last rites, or extreme unction. Again, that's another rabbit hole I am not going down this morning. Vente minutos. Third, the last two verses can be read by some to indicate that there is a transience to salvation, or said differently, that you can lose your salvation. Now, this is what I'm going to address. There are other passages in the Bible talking about the assurance of your salvation that assert that once you have given your life to Christ, it is a permanent and abiding status. Now, James isn't speaking here of eternal life. He's speaking of mortal life. Remember, when we started this series, we learned that this letter is written to believers. Now, if salvation is assured based on these proof texts and others, then these verses are referring to a believer who is turned away. Some would call those backsliders. To put these last two verses in another way, James is saying that if a brother or a sister goes off the reservation and you help them back, you will save them from a world of hurt, even death. You see, God chastises those he loves, and he will likewise allow us to seek our own folly. 
But that sounds a little bit like we're supposed to be in each other's business, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Something like. You know, the image that comes to my mind when I think of this is of a World War I battlefield. And someone decides to climb up out of the trench and go wandering around in no man's land. Only he doesn't see all of the barbed wire and bodies and mud and complete and utter devastation. He's just doing his own thing. And one of his buddies has safety before it's too late. But truthfully, though, my, my struggle with this passage had nothing to do with any of that. Even after reading through this passage about a dozen times, none of that even occurred to me. What I kept tripping over was this one phrase, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. I kept thinking, how do you, how do you say that to someone who's, who's lost someone they've earnestly and fervently prayed for, genuinely believing God would heal them? What do you say when God chooses not to heal? So I went about approaching this in the most logical, obvious way I could. I procrastinated. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, mean I, did, I did read the passage many times, and I, and I prayed for wisdom for, for weeks, hoping to find some key to understanding for some answer to what appeared to be an unanswerable question. I got completely wrapped around the axle. This was just too hard, and I didn't want hard. I wanted an easy layup of a lesson because I'm busy. But I suck at basketball. <clears throat> I soon realized that I was too focused on one little bit that I was taking out of its context and trying to make sense of it. Now, that's a surefire way to come to complete and flawless understanding, right? They tell you when you're learning how to use a rifle scope that you should have both eyes open, except perhaps in extreme distance situations for two reasons. One, so that you can focus more naturally, and two, so you can have a greater situational awareness, right? Well, this is a lesson that applies to Bible study as well. I was focused on that little dot way off in the distance, and I wasn't seeing the big picture. That being said, I'm going to take that question, I'm going to set it aside for a minute. I'm going to talk to you about what God taught me through the process of studying this passage. Now, when I drew back my focus, it became clear that in these last few verses, James is essentially distilling everything that he's been talking about up to this point into two overarching ideas, the significance of prayer and our responsibility to each other. Now, first off, our responsibility to each other. And yes, I'm doing this backwards, but I've got the mic, so you've got to deal with it. I've already spoken about the last two verses and how we can and in fact are specifically instructed to seek out our brothers who are turning away or who have turned away from their faith. Throughout the letter, James says we have to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to our faith. You know, we see a lot of this other focused emphasis throughout the letter. Verse 125, be a doer of the word. Verse 127, visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Verse 28, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 218, Feed and clothe the needy. Verse 318, make peace. Here in these last lines of the letter, James tells us to not only exhort and encourage each other in our faith, to stay on the path of righteousness, but in verse 16, he says we are to confess and to confess to and pray for each other. Whoa, wait a minute. Did he say confess? 
Yeah, well, James has had no problem getting in our face up to this point, so why should he change now, right? But James isn't saying here that we have to bear our souls before the world necessarily. The level of confession should be directly proportional to the sin being confessed. If it's personal, it should be personal. If it's to a group of people, let it be to that group of people. Whatever, the, the, the requirement here is repentance, it's humility, honesty, integrity, and vulnerability. What James is saying is that we can, that we must help each other by being confessors for each other and then praying for each other. Another aspect to this responsibility to each other thing is this stuff related to the elders in verse 14. In verse 14, James says that the elders are to come when called to anoint and pray over the sick. Obvious others kind of thing, right? But notice here that he says the sick person is to call for the elders. It doesn't say the elders got to go looking for the sick people. Elders aren't endowed with a miraculous power of sickdar where they can track down the little red blips to find the sick people. The sick person is to call for the elders. Or to say this differently, we have to be courageous enough to ask for help. It's getting real up in here now, isn't it? If I ask for a raise of hands, and I'm not, for anyone who struggles to ask for help, I wonder how many of us would struggle with the notion of raising your hand because that alone, that alone would be a weakness. You know, if you struggle to ask for help, spiritual, physical, financial, emotional, whatever, brothers, then you've been suckered. You've been suckered into the lie that real men don't need help. I think you may have heard this before, but I'm going to say it again just in case you haven't or in case you've forgotten. You are not an army of one, and you're not supposed to be. The phrases, cowboy up, man up, and grow up hair, carry with them the message that you should be enough, and if you aren't, you're weak and pathetic, that you must not only be self-sufficient, but superior. James 14, 16, 19, and 20 here tell us that we must ask for and accept help and that we must look after and help those among us who both request help and who need it, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not. Now, that being said, I just brushed against my initial question, so let me circle back on that. In wrestling with verses 14 through 16, I looked at the original word meanings for sick, help, and save. The words for sick can point towards someone with a physical ailment or disease, and that's repeated over and over throughout the Gospels where Jesus heals people. But those words can also mean feeble, weak, or weary. And the words for save and heal can mean to be cured, but they can also refer to a spiritual healing or even a physical rescue from something. Additionally, verse 14 referenced anointing, which is sometimes used for medicinal purposes. But anointing was also used for the installment of kings and priests, as well as for daily hygiene, for the celebration of happy occasions, and even to show respect to visitors into your home. Anointing was therefore both spiritually symbolic and physically refreshing. So how does all that relate to the question about 
when God chooses not to heal. Maybe James was intentionally vague. Maybe translation has just made it too complicated. At the end of the day, I don't have an easy answer for that question. God doesn't always answer the way we want or expect. That's not me copping out. David prayed for the life of his illegitimate son with Bathsheba, and he still died. Paul asked for the thorn to be removed from his flesh, and it wasn't. Jesus asked if that cup could be removed from him when, talking, when thinking about his imminent torture and death, and it wasn't. But Jesus' prayer here is where I think we find at least part of the answer to this question. Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here's the frustrating, painful, and comforting truth. God has the whole picture. He knows more than us. God the Father knows best. J. Alec Motyer, he put it like this. But the one thing the promises do not encourage or allow is that we should come into the place of prayer in a stubborn insistence that we have it all right. And that our will must be done. Even if, indeed, if the promises really meant that we always got what we asked as soon as we asked it, and in the measure in which we asked, we would speedily stop praying. And our friends would petition us to stop praying for them. Okay, well then, then why pray specifically like we're told, right? Or, in fact, why bother praying at all? That's a million dollar question, isn't it? And the answer is going to sound kind of 25 cent, but here it is, because we're told to. If you're suffering, pray. If you're happy, pray. If you can't pray for yourselves, get other people to pray for you. James says here, pray. Pray all the time. Because prayer changes things. Prayer changes you. Now, prayer isn't a spiritual fire extinguisher you pull out in case of emergency. Prayer is the vibrant, intimate communication you have like when you first fall in love and you have to tell that someone all about your day. What is the one thing I've learned in preparing for this lesson? That I had been praying like God was that third cousin who kept showing up in my Facebook feed every once in a while. We're told to devote ourselves to prayer because prayer changes reality. And the act of praying changes our position in the will of God. Ravi Zacharias said, If I am to be fulfilled, I must pursue a will that is greater than mine. A fulfilled life is one that has the will of God as its focus, not the appetites of the flesh. Nevertheless, I will but yours be done, said Jesus. What I discovered when I started to intentionally pray, actually, no. It's more like I was trying to intentionally not forget about God during the day. I've been living life under my own steam for quite a while. 
I'd only bother God with what I consider to be the big stuff. Sound familiar? When I started being more intentional, you know what happened? I started to change. Just a bit. My own will became a little bit less important to me than God's. I'm still my old broke down in need of a full body off restoration self. But I began to get through my day a little bit differently. Temptations had the edge knocked off of them. I had a bit more calm in my heart, even in the midst of some pretty intense stuff. And my smile came just a little easier, and I was able to extend grace just a little bit more freely. Now, to some of you, this may sound a little weird, and to others, it's going to be a, well, duh, moment. But when I started praying like James says, all day, in the good stuff and in the bad stuff, not only did I feel closer to God, like he was right there with me, but I genuinely felt his pleasure. It's been a long time. It's pretty awesome. Now, I know trials are coming, and there will be days when praying is hard, and maybe days when I can pray for myself. But it's like they say, you perform like you practice. Am I right? So what about you? <clears throat> Do you have the courage to invite vulnerability, accountability, and intentionality with others into your life? Where? What's prayer like for you? You need to decide if prayer is going to be a should do, a want to do, or simply part of you. This one just questions. <clears throat> 